Theology Thursday. Stay with us. What's up? You ready to go? I'm ready. I was born ready. What I want to do is uh, just bring up the subject of typology. Um, mm-hmm. And I realize it's uh, probably better suited to something like hermeneutics, but in the broad spectrum of exegetical theology, it, it, it works to talk about on a Thursday. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, certainly we have dealt with hermeneutical issues on this part of the show before. Um, it's part of theology. There's no is. getting around it. No, exactly right. And especially with typology, because you have this weird fuse yeah. going on there. It's not like a, it's not just a strict hermeneutical thing. It's a study of relationships, of theo- theological relationships in the, in the text. And um, yeah. and that's what makes it so interesting. And, um, and so it's on my mind a lot lately because um well i'm nearly finished preaching through genesis now like one more chapter pretty much okay yeah yeah. and And, the types are crazy in genesis oh man they just go bunkers so yeah i mean as the whole old testament you know (laughs) really it's exodus can you leviticus oh wow you know well yeah those series that little series i mentioned last time on um inaugurated eschatology Mm -hmm. by bill Mm -hmm. the typology in that yeah it's crazy imagine yeah and just thinking this one one through, I mean, obviously the big danger is to turn typology into a kind of allegory uh, or allegorizing method in hermeneutics, which we want to stay mm-hmm. away from. Um, uh, you know, the church has gone down that track and it wasn't pretty, you know. Um, and yeah. so we want to acknowledge that. And at, at the other level, you know, we really want to acknowledge the, or on the other side, we want to acknowledge the importance of a historical grammatical um, hermeneutic in just keeping your feet on the ground when looking at a, at a passage. But I suppose the, the complexity of this thing comes in somewhere around the middle there where we realize there is a, a fuller sense to the passage, there is a redemptive historical hermeneutic that needs to be considered um, above and beyond just a straight grammatical presentation of the passage. And I'm not necessarily thinking literal, I'm, I'm thinking just just you know, beyond that which can be ascertained by the immediate details of that passage. Um, you've got you've got things to think about in the whole Bible that need to factor in, and you've got a, a biblical theology that will typically move forward to the cross. And and, um, and so if you're in the Old Testament, you're going to have that process um, that, that, that needs to be factored in at all times. Now, just thinking about that, what would you say is the um, difference between that redemptive historical process and allegorizing? Um, I think that one of the the key differences is that there are clearly defined boundaries. Mm -hmm. So uh, with, you know, with allegorizing, you, um, you, you are literally free to take it however you want any, you know, any character can become anything, any, you know, it's like, you know, so you take the famous example from Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? The one with um, the parable of the sower. Okay. Have you ever read Augustine's mm, thing about yeah. that? No, I don't think so. Is it the parable of the sower? I might be getting this completely wrong, but he has this famous example where he's like, you know, 
the the moon equals you know the church and okay, you know like yeah. it just you just goes you just goes wild with it and it's very clear that there's no kind of restraint there are no rules so mm. even when even when paul um uh even when paul speaks allegorically in galatians 4 mm-hmm. uh it's it's clearly defined in the sense that he uh is using the already established kind of progression of the narrative mm-hmm. in old in the old testament mm-hmm. and reading that back into uh the typology of the passage so yeah. what it's he says allegorical but really it's sort of typological isn't it right totally. and <clears throat> and i think that's the key difference is mm. that already there's this the there is a clear natural um sense of of this is what the bible has been teaching mm-hmm. And and uh, so the the kind of allegorical use that he uses there fits very naturally into that. It's not mm, like mm. where did you get that from, or how will you ever expect that? Mm. Actually, saying no, this is this clear progression of the two the two um, Jerusalem's, the mm. two mountains, if you like. So yeah. um, you know they should have picked that up. That should be obvious to them. Mm. And he's just using that as as a kind of illustration. Right, as an example. Mm. So I think I think not having any clearly defined boundaries is one thing. Mm-hmm. Good, yeah. Um, the the other thing, just hearing you talk there, I mean, y- y- we are okay with allegory. Obviously, Paul's using an allegory there. Um, yeah. It's really allegor- uh, allegorism, uh, allegorizing. Yes, you know. Yeah. Uh, that is the problem, and um, and and you know, really, it's quite a technical thing that you're trying to avoid at that point. You know, which is a helpful. I, I found that helpful in that you've got that fourfold allegorical method. Um, which, you know, if you see what they were actually doing and substantiating, you know, just at this structural level of exegesis, I mean, you realize, okay, well, obviously, we don't want to go anywhere close to that. There's no danger uh, of that, even in endorsing an allegory, you know, uh, they would they would think about things at a, you know, at a, at a sort of plane level and then a spiritual level, which didn't have to have any connection whatsoever to the plane level. Um, yeah, I forget what the other levels were, but they're all just like just crazy, you know. Um, and so, just in acknowledging that helps you realize, okay, well, that's a different animal, and you're not easily going to slide into that with any level of historical, grammatical, anything. Yeah, it's true, but it is it is also worth noting that the mm-hmm. whole historical grammatical thing mm-hmm. is very much a product of the the church's grappling with what's happened since the Enlightenment. You know, yeah. Yeah. the factoring how to use reason, and um, uh, it's it's not so much a reaction against the kind of allegorical mm. reading mm. as it is a reaction against the the elevation of reason in mm. philosophy. And so, we've got to be slightly careful. I, you know, the historical grammatical method is good. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I affirm it, mm-hmm. but only because it it is a helpful tool to get at authorial intent exactly. which is the main thing which is the main thing yeah yeah and, and it's clear mm-hmm. it's in certain places that the bible's views that the authors had an intention that they knew was reaching beyond themselves mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um so they were speaking of you know so you you mentioned earlier that that fuller sense mm. that actually there was a sense in which they would have understood something literally at the time but yeah. there was a fuller sense in which they knew they were talking about things that they didn't fully, 
fully understand. I couldn't totally comprehend how they were all going to come together. Mm. You know, so the classic examples of this are uh, the, the Hebrews 11 reading of of Abraham searching for a kingdom, um, uh, a kingdom not made by humans but made by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, his foundations, the mm. build, the builder of the foundations is God, mm-hmm. and um, and and you read back through Genesis and you think, well, I don't. I, did Abraham know that? Would he have known that when mm. God made those promises to him about uh, the land? And you know, is he was he really anticipating a kind of new creation at that point? Mm. And in Hebrews, it says yes. Mm. You know, he had a sense that mm. it was going to have to be a new creation, and you have to come to terms with that. So, mm. historical grammatical is good only insofar as it's a tool to help us understand authorial intent, because yeah. that's really the heart of good interpretation and so allegory could also be a useful tool Mm -hmm. insofar as it helps us understand authorial intent Mm. um but we can't so elevate grammatical historical principles that they end up like we end up elevating our own reason Mm. or our own ability to decide what the author would have understood Mm -hmm. yeah Um, yeah and you know what i think um in some sense, although it's not the full picture, I mean, I think there's a, just a lot to say about a redemptive historical hermeneutic on its own, you know, added to that historical mm-hmm. grammatical thing. But I think just as a kind of historic category, typology definitely helps in keeping us from elevating reason to that point and from chaining the text to, to something it wasn't ever intended to be, that, you know, if, um, if not a wooden literalism, then something else. One of my favorite um, essays on this, um, is written by Mark Kahlberg. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I've just pulled it up here. What he says is that typology, and I love this, he says typology may and indeed must go beyond mere exegesis. So he even puts it in those terms. Yeah. Um, you know, even yeah. thinking of it as something beyond exegesis, which was an eye opener to me because you really are somewhat in the realm of theology or biblical theology. And even if biblical theology is in the realm of exegesis, then you're in the realm almost of, of systematics, you know, in typology, because you're yeah. studying relationships and you're seeing the way the word works together as one. But um, he says it may never introduce into the Old Testament text a principle which was not already present and intelligible to its Old Testament readers, which is great. So it says, yeah, and that's what we were saying about Paul's use of it. Yes, brilliant. Yeah. That's exactly you what know, you were saying. Earlier. Yeah. 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 Uh, just one more little line here. It says, sound exegesis and a respect for the sense of the Old Testament text thus discovered will prevent typology from degenerating into allegorizing or allegorism. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, I think, just a helpful way to look at it as well. Um, you think of typology as, as almost like get rid of the word and just think, just think about relationships, you know? How does this relate to that? And how does this relate to that? And then add to that the doctrine of providence, where you understand that the historical event has been formed in such a way to make it relate, you know? And um, this is something that one needs to acknowledge. Well, there's a there's a great article I've mentioned it before. I think it's Daryl Bach, mm-hmm. uh, and he was answering the question. It was to do with the relationship, the old and the new, but it was particularly to do with how we typically answer questions about um, alleged discrepancies in the Gospels or contradictions in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And from a strictly historical grammatical 
point of view, which is um, often associated with like reading it literalistically. Mm. Um, And it doesn't allow uh, it, you know, in some circles doesn't allow for any typology or anything like Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Um, uh, the, The danger with using that about the, the contradictions in the gospels thing is that you, you end up having to try and harmonize every apparent contradiction. Mm, mm. You know, you've got to f- create circumstances where all of the different options can be true. Um, and this is particularly difficult when it comes to how the new Testament says uh, it is fulfilling old Testament prophecy, mm-hmm. because, you know, he will be called a Nazarene, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. doesn't have, you know, it says mm-hmm. it to, this is to fulfill what it says, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he will, he will not be called a Nazarene. You can, mm-hmm. you can search high and low for that passage in the old Testament. It's just not there. Maybe in the so what did he though. Well, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So that's interesting in and of itself, but, but put that on hold for a sec. So okay. you go, <clears throat> you go, um, yeah, so so the, that passage isn't there. So when it says it's fulfilling that, what mm-hmm. does it mean? And he says the whole thing is he doesn't use the word typology. He uses the word patterns of fulfillment. Yeah, so, fuller senses, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is the, the fuller sense. But actually, yeah. I think that's quite helpful for yeah. types and shadows because yeah. patterns of fulfillment, yeah. it, it is a pattern of fulfillment. So you, you have, you know, a pattern mm. of um create you know the waters of chaos being brought into order in genesis mm. and then you see that pattern again in the exodus and you see that pattern again in baptism yeah. Yeah. and you see that pattern again when the waters are uh, are still in clear or there's no, sorry there's no sea mm-hmm. in the new creation mm-hmm. and and so like there are these patterns it's just like oh god's doing that where mm. he's calling a people and rescuing them through some miraculous intervention of, to do with water mm. and bringing them into like a promised land, you know, and you think, oh, okay, well, we've seen that before, or like a, a lamb or, a, you know, mm. uh, uh, the sacrificial lamb or the scapegoat or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, and so these patterns of fulfillment, you know, you call them types, call them patterns, but mm. it's just the way the New Testament sees itself as fulfilling the Old Testament. And mm. so without it, you're really going to come unstuck. Totally. At um, a purely grammatical historical level. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, or just, uh, oh, it's so impoverished in so many ways, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, one more thing from Kahlberg. He says, typology is a theology, and I love this, just in light of what you were saying. Uh, typology is a theology of the progression of God's acts of salvation through Jesus Christ. I love that definition. Typology is a theology of the progression of God's acts of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's essentially saying that typology is, is a pure form of biblical theology. You know, if, you, if you're strictly uh, keeping this one single theme of uh, God's acts of salvation through Jesus Christ in view. So, you know, I love that. And then he says, um, uh, the rationale of the New Testament typological exegesis is not only the continuity of God's purpose throughout the history of his covenant, but also his lordship in molding and using history to reveal and illumine his purpose. And then he says, God writes his parables in the sands of time. Isn't that awesome? Mm. Mm. Boom. I think think that is awesome. Mm. And it also touches on a massive point, which is that whenever you're interpreting the Bible, that is an act of theology. 
there's no getting around it. That's like true. You, you mm-hmm. interpret the Bible theologically. Mm-hmm. So this comes back to that Septuagin question. Yes. Because the Septuagin was the first, not only translation, but the first interpretation, major interpretation yeah. Yeah. of the Old Testament. Because it's obviously every time you translate, you interpret. Yeah. You can't translate without interpreting. Mm. But at the same time, um, it it wasn't just a translation; it was an interpretation, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, and it it is quoted or referred to in the New Testament. What, what is it? What's well, it's, the it's sta- not even that it's stats? quoted. It's not even that it's quoted, uh, which you know one might expect, you know, being in Greek and all, but it's that it's when there is a um, uh, a divergence or a a discrepancy between the Masoretic or the Hebrew and the Septuagint. They go with the Septuagint, which is like, what? Like the Table of Nations in Luke. The Table of Nations, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you you just sort of, they give preference to the Septuagint. And uh, Lee Irons actually points out that it's, it might be, it might be, it might be just that they are, though, in those particular moments, seeing the insight of the the as you said the theology and interpretation of the passage or or you know perhaps uh, not particularly on the table of nations because that's a little too concrete but yeah when you have that hardline discrepancy um what might be happening is that you know we have the because it's the oldest thing that we have to testify to the the ancient text you know it predates uh the hebrew uh copies that we have and so um by the time, and apparently they were all using the Septuagint all the way through to Jerome um, as just the standard sort of go-to for the Old Testament. And um, mm-hmm. and so by the time, you know, post-Jerome, we start getting into the Hebrew, uh, there's plenty of time for the Hebrew text itself to have been corrupted, you know, perhaps even from a Jewish sort of uh, antagonism towards Christianity. So, you know, in some ways, it might even show a superior angle there. Um, on those details, um, you know, but it's obviously a very contentious issue in that, you, and there's a lot of, and there is no one single Septuagint. That's what makes it uh, difficult as well. You've got like all these yeah. different yeah. manuscripts that are basically compiled in an eclectic text, and so you have to work with that as well. But it's just a very interesting thing, you know, um, and it yeah. does make you scratch your head a little bit. Well, I think um, Moses Silver. Um, it's probably not how you say his name. Moses de Silva. But you know the dude yeah. from, What's that? Moses de Silva, I think. I think it's just Silva. Hmm. Let me check. I don't know. There's another guy. Yeah. There's another de Silva who does like... He's written a big new introduction to the New Testament. Okay. But I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the, the Westminster guy. Yeah. 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 I think it's so just he, Silva. Is it? I, I thought it was just Silva. Anyway, I don't know. Check it. Google it. The, uh, the, the, uh, what was I going to say? Do, I don't know. So, <laughs> oh yeah, he, he, he has a good chapter in his introduction to biblical hermeneutics, um, called Calvinistic hermeneutics, where he basically says like theology just plays a, a key part in the way that we interpret. And right, so by the way, it's, um, it's Moses Silver. Moses Silver, but it's yeah, like well. Moises, Moises Silver. Yeah, it's it's not. It's, it's pretty sure it's not Moses Silver, but in my <laughs> mind, it is Moses Silver because it just. I got so freaked out 
trying to work out how to say his name, like Moises. <laughs> and then it just, it was throwing me off. It was distracting me from actually like doing work. So I had Moises. to just settle in my mind that I was going to call him Moses and then move him, on from let's, it. Let's call him Moises. <laughs> Moises. <laughs> I just can't do it. It's it's like saying porpoise. I, I can't. <laughs> True yeah, that. Tortoise. Right. You I'm just... sold. Let's call him Moses. <laughs> Moses. Good grief, man. What was that? <laughs> oh, I'm dude. Moses. It's not as bad as this commentary in Revelation by a guy named Boring. <laughs> I'm not just thought, man. That's unfortunate. <laughs> Some guys, they're, yeah, they just oh, difficult, difficult providence. Tough on, yeah. tough on the playground. <laughs> um, anyway. Oh, uh, yeah. So he 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 highlights this point, like, because he he's he actually rushes to the defense of the medieval guys mm-hmm. and saying that, um, like, true, I wouldn't necessarily like recommend everything that they were saying, but it wasn't that they only read the text allegorically. They did have other readings of the text as well. It's mm-hmm. just that they kind of didn't always, um, yeah, in the best of medieval. Th- exegesis they would connect all of the senses yeah, so like they, do, they and, were aware of yeah. of the literal sense mm-hmm. and they did connect that with the spiritual sense mm-hmm. but in the worst of it it was just completely unrelated and mm-hmm. i think that's when it goes into wild allegory or yeah. allegorism or whatever it is yeah. um <clears throat> and so that's a good chapter to read because mm-hmm. he, he challenges those assumptions and says actually you get good stuff from medieval exegetes yeah and it's even all, if when, it, when the they're, they're at the best what when, you they're, when they're christological they're at their best, right? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just when they go into other sort of spheres. And even, as you know, you could tolerate when they go a little bit wild on the Christological angle, but at least, you know, it's in the ballpark of, of good theology at that level. It's it's sort of in, yeah. in conformity to what we know is right as an interpretation yeah. of the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, so that, that book was his um, book on hermeneutics you're talking about? Yeah, it wasn't just him. It was in, It's an interesting book because he writes it with Walter Kaiser, who's a, oh, he's who's a, a dispensationalist. dispensationalist. Yeah. So the, the I found it slightly frustrating okay. because Walter Kaiser handled all of the controversial areas. Mm. So it's meant to be a one volume, two perspective. Okay. So you're meant to get like an evenly weighted ref, reformed in, but you don't because mm. he covers all the major areas. Okay. Yeah. And basically Moses Silver handles like some introductory chapters and okay. some conclude, you know, like, um, yeah, some almost miscellaneous stuff at the end, and mm. so it's not. I don't. I don't. I, I, that was a bit frustrating. But the, um, but he he's got a chapter in there called Calvinistic Hermeneutics, which isn't actually about the doctrines of grace. It's about, it's about the theological interpretation of mm. of the Bible. Mm. Um, and it's it's interesting because like you he 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 compares the way Lutheran and Calvin both handle Psalm 8. Okay. And he's like, Kelvin veered more towards kind of the literal end of things. And Luther was almost happy to go straight to Christ. So they're both right. expounding Psalm 8. Wow. Luther obviously knows that's where Hebrews is going to take him. Mm. It's going to take him straight to Christ. So mm. that's where he goes. He doesn't, he doesn't show any careful mm. biblical theological working out, he just goes straight to Christ. Now he's not wrong, is he? Yeah. Like, 
Like that's what Hebrews does. So surely that is a correct interpretation of Psalm 8. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Kelvin, he, he expounds the Psalm as the Psalm and then sort of, if you like, points at the end, points forward to what Hebrews says about Christ. But it's kind of right at the end. It's almost like a conclusion. Mm-hmm. But he deals with the Psalm in and of itself. Yeah. Now, you know, which one of those is the right way to interpret it? Mm. Well, I'd I'm, say that if you don't go to Christ, yeah, you're making a mistake. Certainly, yeah. if you're preaching, yeah. Um, but if you if you go to Christ, it doesn't really matter if you if you. It might not help people understand how to read the Bible responsibly if you jump there too quickly. Mm. But um, you ultimately, but get in there. the end of yeah. the day, ultimately, it's yeah. right. That's where yeah. you should go. Yeah, I do think it is important to model that responsibility though so you know i would take kelvin's approach definitely Uh, but you know you just appreciate that christ-centered zeal from luther at the end of the day and um you know it's kind of like spurgeon so similar sort of thing where he just he's like listen hack through the hedge if you need to jump over the rock do it with one hand you know however you need to get there you know carve away to christ and you can't go wrong well i remember thinking that so actually when i when i was preaching at your church mm-hmm. on Psalm 63. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just thinking, I don't want to spend a huge amount of time. I mean, it's different because I was just doing a, like a one-off, mm-hmm. whereas you're you're there every week. So you can, you don't have to explain things, you know, fresh every Sunday, do you? No. But um, uh, I didn't want to spend like 20 minutes of my sermon mm you know showing the technical things of how i am applying the psalm and mm. um and whatever so i just went straight there mm-hmm. and then sort of at the end made a quick explanation for why i did it rather than yeah well that's good you know yeah. so i took a more luther luther like approach cool. and that was a you know even though normally if i was preaching in my own church i would do it the other way around you know, there's a time. I think there's a time and a place. That was my my take on it. Anyway, well, you do have. A, I just wanted to get. You do have a Lutheran tattoo, so. I do like Luther. There is that. I'm Luther Baptist. Luther Baptist. You know what? Uh, Chris wants me to, for the dissertation, he wants me to look at the, the objectivity connection between Klein and Lutheran theology. I'm like, dude. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I'm okay. like, I don't know. It just means I have to read all the Lutherans though. Really yeah, I like I like them from a distance. I like to go, yay, Lutherans, keep going, awesome, and then just get back into <laughs> yeah. the good stuff, you know. It's just like shame, shame you lost two of the five. That's all. <laughs> exactly. It's like, why'd you do that? Why'd but you okay. Do that? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Like I can handle the pedo baptism, but why did you drop two of the five points, guys? Dude, why? 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 Um, all right, let me end with this. You ready? Mm-hmm. The pattern for sound interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures was enunciated for us in the teaching of Jesus. He said that the law and the prophets witnessed concerning mm. himself as the Messiah. Only through the eyes of faith could one grasp the true meaning of the scriptures. Again, Mark Colbert. Amen. Yeah. Let's end with that. That's a good one. Who's and this dude? Who, Mark Colbert. He's, like he's like an Kleinian extremist. Like imagine a... Imagine a nuclear missile, you know, <laughs> with the word Klein written on it. You know, he's just like one of those guys. But he's very, very sharp. So where is, very, very is sharp. this? Can I get hold of this? Oh, yeah. Is totally. this, uh, where, um, 
in fact, let me just uh, pull it up right here. Yeah, it's Essays, uh, Covenant Theology and Reform Perspective. I think I'm getting that title right. Mark Kahlberg, if you Google that. I think, it, in fact, I think it's on the Meredith Klein website. Um, okay, you know, cool. So you can go pull it from that. Uh, Is this a published article? It's a, or... it's, yeah, it's a published book. You can buy it as well, but you know you can get it for free. Okay, they've made it available. But nice. yeah, no, he is solid. I've got all his books. I mean, I just love Mark Kahlberg. I think he's great. He's one of those guys. That, you know, if Klein is under attack in any way, I mean, Kahlberg is just way down the road on that, and so he's kind of ostracized okay. himself from any level of community. But he is pure brilliance. You know, brilliance incarnate. You know, kind of like another Lee Irons figure. You know, um, one is, son. Yeah, one son. Totally. Um, why do you, why do people object to that? Like, what do you know what the argument is when Jesus says, uh, you know, the law and the prophets, they testify about me? Mm-hmm. Why do How, people... You know, to me, that's that's a clear inkling that you should see Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I mean, I think the only, only people that really um, do object to that is or would have any fundamental theological problem with that is um, dispensationalism. But the thing is, again, as we spoke about the other time, they've created a, a way to make that apply by way of analogy rather than fulfillment. And so that's why... Analogy. I, yeah. So in other words, um, if you have a parenthetical church age, everything that the Old Testament talks about can be fulfilled in a kind of mirrored way in the church, but not in the ultimate way. Oh, I see. It's the whole kind of yeah. setup. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like a matrix. Yeah. It's, it's just like a, the two new covenants. And look, wow, that new covenant looks like the real new covenant, doesn't it? You know? And, and okay, cool. Okay. It's just like the real covenant, except it isn't, you know? And, and um, it's one of those. Yeah. So, but let's not branch into that right now because this is. Uh, let's not do that. Let's no, do no. That. I, just, I was just curious because to me, it's like so awesomely clear. Yeah. True. Yeah. And it's been also perhaps just on that point, just worth saying that it's just throughout church history, it's been a guiding principle. You know, you've seen even mm. in the worst parts of, of hermeneutics, the worst parts of the, the, the church's history, that has kept us going in some ways, hasn't it? You know, absolutely. Even in the, yeah. when you've just had absolute nonsense, I mean, some dribble that have come from those pulpits, the best part of it has always represented that understanding. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Cool. All right. Thanks for joining me, man. No problem. And have a good week, y'all. Mm-hmm.